Thank you, Brother Michael. Uh, please take a moment right now to uh, silence your phones and mobile devices because it might disturb somebody else. More importantly, I have a heavy message in my heart today and it, and it might break me. So anyway, please take a moment so that they won't go off during the service. And for those that are uh, not used to the Pentecostal experience, Brother Matt, our worship leader, says we are a Pentecostal church. And to today we received a message in tongues followed by an interpretation that we believe is God speaking to us. Thank you, sister, for being sensitive to the spirit. Day 10 of our fast. We're almost to the end, but and I really hope that you are participating in some form because we all have need to be on our knees to God during these times. If you don't have an outline, please, uh, there's some in the back. Uh, Brother Chip is back there ready to give you one if you'll raise your hand. If you don't have one, he'll give you one. So we need to be on our knees because I am convinced that we're living in the last days. And the spirit of this age is described in Ephesians 6. is doing everything in his power to lead us away from God. And we can see it as we look around at the moral climate of our nation. And if you're honest, we have to admit that it's not good. There is sexual immorality, even in the churches, even in church leadership. Middle-aged children are already involved with sex. Marijuana use is being legalized. There's violence over politics. You can't watch television without having to listen to profanity or to watch as homosexuality is being portrayed as normal. Even commercial ads now are shoving it down our throats. The Ad Council recently came out with a commercial with the statement, love has no gender. And it shows two women kissing. And in another one, a segment of that commercial, it has two men kissing while they're holding the hand of a little boy between them. As one man said, Today we live in the midst of crooked deals, pet pills, cheap thrills, and sometimes you can't tell the jacks from the jills. They say that the church is in the Middle Ages when we don't preach against these things. Several years ago, someone asked Dr. Uh, Billy Graham why he was trying to set the church back 100 years with his evangelistic crusades, to which he responded, 100 years? Excuse me, I'm trying to set the church back 2,000 years. Amen. And I'm here this morning to declare that the church of Jesus Christ needs what Bethel needs is a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in the presence of God, once again in our hearts and in our lives. Why am I targeting the church with this statement? My sermon today may be considered harsh, but 
during my time of prayer and fasting, the Lord dealt with me about some very harsh things. And I want to pass these on to you. It seems with a lot of sermons that I hear on TV and radio today, most of them attempt to erase the true God and substitute in its place a God who makes men feel comfortable. Statistics show that 50 million Americans profess to be born again. When I compare that to the statistic with the moral climate that I just described, I find it very disturbing. We're supposed to be a Christian nation. It's even becoming popular again to say, I am born again. Yet the impact of Christianity on our country seems to be weak, shallow. It seems to be superficial. It even, the messages and everything seems to be syrupy. Being a Christian may be in, but it doesn't seem to be having much of an impact. The Christianity being touted, especially in the affirming churches, is one of self-indulgence and selfish-centeredness. That views of God, uh, they, they view God only in terms of what he can do for us. God has become sort of like a, an Aladdin's lamp kind of genie. Where you rub your little theological lamp, he pops out and grants you three wishes. They criticize the teaching of the full word of God by saying, well, it's too strong. It alienates people. What is really being said is we want a God that makes us comfortable. What we have here, folks, is that we really don't understand God. We don't understand his nature. Oh yeah, we've, we've embraced all those attributes of God as they relate to our comfort and our well-being. God is love, yes. God is patient. God is kind, yes. Long-suffering, merciful, yes. He is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. He is Jehovah Rapha, my healer. Yes, yes. All those attributes, though, are ones that attributes that benefit us. But there's one element of theology that we really don't understand. It is the theological fundamental fact about God. God is holy. God is majestic. God is fearful. He is mighty. He is awesome. He is supreme. In fact, Exodus 15 and 11 tells us, Who is like you, glorious in holiness? The beauty of the Lord is the beauty of holiness. I don't think we understand the holiness of God. And I know, I know that to the human mind, God, the totality of God is incomprehensible. But I do believe that we can understand the holiness of God a lot better than we do now. So I want to share this morning some things that the Holy Spirit has been impressing in my heart about the holiness of God. The central thing I want you to see about God is that he is holy. And once you grasp that, 
once you have that understanding, it'll weigh as heavily on your hearts as it does on mine. Let's read the introduction to give you some questions in your mind as to that you can answer as you study and meditate on this sermon, which I hope you do in your next week. What effect should the holiness of God have upon your li or the life of a believer? Isaiah's vision of God's holiness had a profoundly humbling effect on him. Does it do the same for us today? How can a greater understanding of the infinite holiness of God create in our hearts a deeper reverence toward God? And what impact should the holiness of God have upon our everyday lives? To help our understanding, <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I want us to, you to take your Bible and turn to the sixth chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. And I want us to examine the first nine verses. And I want us to see the holiness of God as Isaiah relates this to us here. Let's read all eight verses and then I'll come back and, and we'll glean from them one by one. Reading verse one from the New King James. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood cherubim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one ceremon flew to me, having his hand, in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from, with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Let's stop there for a second. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word is precious. And in it is the answers to all our problems and guidance to, for our walk with you. Lord, help me to explain it, Father, the way you have waited in my heart. And let the ears receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. So the prophet Isaiah writes in verse 1, In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I imagine there was great anguish in Israel when the king died. You see, King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. He had ushered in a time of great wealth and prosperity to the nation. Sound familiar? He had provided security with a powerful military and strong defenses. And now the king had died. 
It reminds me of the despair and the sorrow that was felt all across the nation when President Kennedy was assassinated. You may be too young uh, to remember, but it's still in my heart. When he was assassinated in the streets of Dallas, Texas, friend and foe alike all through the nation were shocked that this could happen. He was especially mourned by the minority community as they perceived him to be the champion for civil rights. And now he was dead. Such was the case in Israel. The king is dead. And they could see out in the horizon the great Assyrian army that was approaching and was marching towards them. It was a bad year. 2020 was a bad year as the world went into lockdown because of COVID-19. But let's not stop there. Notice the verse says next. In the midst of a bad year, I saw the Lord. In the year when we lost our human king, I saw the real king sitting on the throne. When you realize that Adonai, the sovereign one, is still on the throne, there is no need to panic. There is no desperation with the things, the way things are going. It might have looked to Uzziah as if the whole thing was falling apart. The human king was dead. But history does not depend on human kings. But on the absolute monarchy. The supreme lord Adonai. God himself. His kinship is infinitely to superior to that of Uzziah or anyone else. In the midst of a pandemic, in the turmoil of politics, in the face of a medical catastrophe, the king is still on the throne. Also notice that Isaiah sees God on the throne, and the throne is high and lifted up. The king is sitting high in an exalted position. You know, when I lived in Los Angeles, I had an hour and a half commute in rush hour traffic. And before I left home, I would tune into the traffic report. They had helicopters flying over the city and, and over the freeways and relaying the trouble spots. If I was sitting in traffic, I could not see the trouble spot. I could not ask the guy in the car next to me. He didn't know either. No, I needed somebody that was high above the situation to see what was going on. God's throne is high and above your situation. He can see what we cannot. He can see the future of your situation. And because he can, you can have the assurance that he can guide you. And by the way, you know who he was looking at? Turn to John 12, 41. And this says, these things that Isaiah said when he saw his glory spoke of him. Who? Christ. He tells us that this was Christ he was looking at, really a pre-incarnate of Christ. Continuing with verse 1, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Can you picture it? The train of his robe, his holy presence filling the temple. It is standing room only, folks. You cannot sit. You cannot be uh, um, uh, dozing off. 
The king is here. You cannot be fiddling with your phone. You cannot be doing anything else because El Shaddai is present. No time for playing games. No time for daydreaming. The Lord Adonai is in the building. And when Christ is in the building, all our cares will disappear. When Christ is here, we are like the blind man sitting by the road in Jericho. We don't care about decorum. We don't care about what people will think about us. All we care about is crying out to Christ, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Oh, that you could catch that vision. Hallelujah. I need to cool the motor a little bit. Hold on. Verse 2. Above it stood, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. And two, with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Now what are seraphims? Here in Isaiah is the only place in scripture that, uh, that they're mentioned. And when you translate their names, it means the fiery ones. The seraphim, as, as Isaiah described them, have faces, they have feet, they have hands, and they have voices. But they also have something else very curious. They have six set of wings, or three sets of wings. And I've often wondered about this. Why six wings and not just two to fly around with? Well, I believe God had something very purposeful in that. Now, it says that with two he flew. They apparently were so they, that was, so they could have the ability to minister around the throne of God, which was high and lifted up, remember, they had to get up there. And upon some occasions, as indicated in, in chapter 6, would do, to bid, do the bidding of God as he flew with the live coal and put it on Isaac, Isaiah's lips. But they hovered around the throne. Isn't that amazing? It is to me. Then it has, says that he had two more wings with which they covered their feet. Why? Do you wonder? A possible reason can be found in the book of Exodus where we find Moses had self-exiled himself to work as a shepherd in the desert around Mount Horeb. For 40 years, he led his sheep around this area when one day he encountered a curious a bush. And when he approached it, God spoke to him out of that bush and told him to remove his shoes. Do you remember why? He had probably over the course of 40 years passed by this bush seven times, always with his shoes on. What was so special about this time when he had to remove his shoes? Read with me in Exodus 3, verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place you are standing is holy ground. God was there. And whenever his divine, wherever his divine presence is, everything is immediately sanctified. This was holy ground. Not for any virtue of, in and of itself, but because God was there. 
and his pervasive presence sanctified the earth under his feet. That is why whenever I feel the presence of the Lord here in worship, I come up and worship without my shoes, not as ritual, but because I feel his presence and I know that it's holy ground. And in the heavenly temple, wherever angels land, is a place sacred so that they have to cover their feet. It is holy ground. Then it says they had two wings with which they covered their face. This is a little easier to understand because if they hover around the throne of God, they are exposed to the whole, full glory of his presence. You remember in Exodus 33, Moses said harshly to God, or rather God says to him, you are going to be my man, Moses, to go lead my people. And Moses said, I'm not going to do it alone. If you don't go with me, I'm not going. And God says, okay, my presence will go with you. I'll go with you. And Moses said, that's a nice promise, God, but I need some proof. Talk about a man of faith, right? I mean, I appreciate you saying that, God, but would you just prove it to me by showing me your presence or your glory? And God gives him a very good answer. He said, no man can see my glory and live. No creature could withstand the sight of the blazing fullness of the glory of God. And God promises, yes, God promises that he'll always be near us, but we cannot withstand his full revelation. No, we can't. Read with me Exodus 33 and 20. He said, but he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be when my, while my glory passes by, what I shall put on you in the cleft of a rock and will cover you and with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. So I believe that is why the angels covered their face. I don't think that they could have existed in the full radiance of the glory of the holiness of God. <clears throat> but the most incredible thing about what was going on is not what they looked like, but what they were saying. Let's verse, read verse 3. And one cried out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Back and forth, without ceasing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now can you imagine angels just flying around forever saying that back and forth? No, you can't. Because you and I can't understand the worthiness of the holiness of God. And neither uh, does anybody else. What does, what, what, that's what seraphims do. Holy, holy, holy. That is praise at its highest level. The holiness of God is indescribable in human language. God is holy. Preserving of rever deserving of reverence and respect. He is separate. 
as a supreme creator, above and apart from the sinful world. The Jews had a figure of speech, a device they used when they wanted to emphasize something that they were saying by use of repetition. And that could be illustrated in many, many places in the Bible, as many times we, we find that. One example is before Jesus would say anything that was very, very important, he would always repeat one word twice. Remember? Verily, verily, I say unto you. For true, for true is a device that he is affirming by repetition the significance of what he was about to say. He was placing emphasis on the issue. And when the Bible says holy, 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 what it's trying to do is emphasize the holiness of God. We don't even know that God is holy, let alone holy, holy, holy. By the way, do you know that that is the only attribute of God that is repeated three times in Scripture that way? Never does the Bible say God is love, 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 or light, 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 or truth, 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 or God is mercy, mercy, mercy. No. The only time it says it is when it says God is holy, holy, holy. This is an absolute priority, brothers and sisters. It is impossible to understand the fullness of it. And yet you must understand as much as the scripture gives us. The absence of a clear understanding of God's holiness, I believe, is the reason for our selfishness. It's the reason for our shallowness. It's the reason for our impotence. It's the reason for our weakness and our disobedience. We don't real un really understand how holy God is. That is why we compromise. That is why uh, we only do what fulfills our desires. <clears throat> when the disciple asked Jesus to teach him to pray, Jesus told them how to pray. And he told him to pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know what hallowed means? It means holy. You want to pray, start out with the, with the recognition of the holiness of God. God is holy. I recently started reading a book during my fast that helped me as a, as a newborn Christian on how to pray. It's called The Hour That Changes the World. I highly recommend it to you, if, especially if you struggle with prayer, especially if you struggle praying more than 10 minutes. It breaks down an hour of prayer into 12 five-minute segments, all filled with scripture references. The first segment is worship. Because as he puts it, it changes the focus from you to him. When you worship, you're not worshiping you. You're worshiping him. At least I hope so. What is the uh, proper reaction to all this when he saw this? First he, noticed, first, he notices one thing. He says, and the post of the door, verse 4, were shaken. They were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. 
the place begins to shake. Have you ever experienced a shaking of your whole world, of your whole building? You never get used to them. We lived in California 22 years and lived through several earthquakes. You never get used to them. I imagine the scene as something similar here in the temple. The foundations of the place begin to shake and there was fire and smoke which could either be emanating from the altar or could be a manifestation of the fiery presence of God. It was like at Mount Sinai when Moses went up to meet with the Lord. Remember the reaction of the Israelites? Ah, that's okay, Moses. You go on ahead. We'll wait here. In other words, we begin to see a holy God of judgment this is not a manifestation particularly of God's mercy, but it is of his tremendous majestic holiness. It is awful. It is fearful. It's like Mount Sinai. It is a statement to Isaiah and the people of God that God is a consuming fire and you cannot toy around with God. You'll be consumed. What is Isaiah's reaction? Verse 5. Let's look at his reaction. So I said, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah cried out, woe is me. It's not a cry of despair, although I think there's some despair in it. It's, more, it's much more than that. You see, in scriptures, there are two pronouncements usually given by prophets. And their statement could be positive or it could be negative. If it's positive, they would say, blessed. When they were negative, they would say, woe. We see the word many times in prophetic utterances referring to God's judgment on others. Many prophets in, in Scripture use it. And Jesus used it in, Mar in Matthew 24 when he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And the angels of judgment use it in Revelation. Uh, it is a word of cursing. But here, the prophet is pronouncing a curse on himself. Wow! This is the best man in the land. This is a servant of God. But when he sees the holiness of God, the only thing he could do is pronounce a curse on his own head. He can only see his filthiness. He's not his godliness. And then he says, for I am undone. I am toast. I am about to be destroyed. I am devastated by the holiness of God. I'm wiped out. I'm falling apart. I'm coming apart at the seams. Why? Because he saw God. And when he saw God for the first time in his life, he realized how wretched he was. He may have been top dog, strutting his stuff all over Israel. Everybody honored him, patted him on the back. You're the man. Everybody who was godly said he was the best of them the spiritual leader, the voice of God, but one glimpse of God's holiness, and the man was a wretch in his own eyes. Look at what he says. 
I am a man of unclean lips. This from a man that has, there was the mouthpiece. His lips spoke utterances of God to the Jews. The man who declared the words of God, he further realizes that I'm no better than the rest of, for they are as dirty as I am. Me, the prophet of God, who should open my mouth to speak to God. I got a dirty mouth and I dwell in the midst of people who have dirty mouths. How do you know this? Because mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and for the first time I see myself. I'm a dirty man. I have a dirty mouth. I have seen Yahweh of hosts. When you compare yourself you see how holy he is. No man can stand in the presence of God be, without becoming profoundly and devastatingly aware of his wretchedness and sinfulness. That is why I say to you, if you don't understand the holiness of God, we don't understand our sinfulness. And if we don't understand how atrocious and how, how uh, uh, unworthy we are, and we don't understand the consequence of it. To see even a little glimpse of God's holiness is to be devastated. Isaiah would never be the same. Never. And neither would anybody else that comes in, into contact with God. Others in scripture have been similarly affected. Habakkuk. Let's take a couple for example. And I'm running late so I'm going to skip the readings on Luke guys. Um, <clears throat> others in scripture have been uh, similarly affected. Let's look at Habakkuk. Habakkuk had been pleading in, in verse in chapter one with God to do something about the wickedness uh, and, and saying stuff like, "Oh Lord, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear?" Finally, in chapter two, verse one, he writes, "I'm going to stand my watch." And set myself on the rampart and watch to see what you will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. He's saying, God, I want an answer and I'm going to stay here until you answer me. Well, like I always said, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. God gave him an answer, all right. And after that encounter, Habakkuk was a mess. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. Man, he says, when I heard the voice of God, when I heard him speak, I shook from top to bottom. Now I long to rest in the day of trouble. Let's look at another one, uh, Job. If you're following the plan, we've read a lot of Job, and we've seen that Job and his so-called so friends are going back and forth with their ramblings and of their understanding of God and their understanding of Job's plight. And chapter 38, verse 1, uh-oh, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. You want an answer, Job? Well, brace yourself, for here it comes. Verse 2, 
Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Prepare yourself like a man? Wow, did God just question his manhood? Oh, no, he didn't. And God proceeds to give Job the worst tongue lashing in the history of mankind. And when it was all said and done, chapter 42, verse 5, Job says this, After I heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. No one ever comes before the holiness of God without devastation. And even with, with, when Jesus is present, and I'll skip the reading of, of these chapters, but I'll just relate. When they were in the, in the boat and the storm comes up, and comes up and Jesus is called out and he stills the wind, they were, the, the disciples were terrified with the storm and they woke Jesus up. But afterwards, he said, oh, you have little faith. Don't you have any faith? And what does the scripture says? They were terrified. Who is this that even the waves obey him? You can read that in chapter 8 and verse 22. And then another instance where uh, Jesus uh, was teaching from the boat and then he told Simon, Put the boat out and lower your nets. And Simon says, Lord, we've been doing this all night. We're professional fishermen. We haven't caught a thing. But because you say we will, they did. You know the story. They caught the fish. They had to get a second boat. And after that, Simon says, he falls to his knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He realized in the moment by that incredible miracle that he was standing in the presence of God. He said, go away, because he knew that God was there. And another example, and you can put this one up, uh, folks, is Manoah was the, son, was the father of Samson. And before he was born, he appeared to, to Zorah, his mother, to tell her, and then again to Manoah, because to, Manoah wanted verification. And then when he told them to verify it, and the angel went up to heaven in the fire and glory, Manoah cried out in Judges 13, 22. And he said, and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. See, these people understood the holiness of God. Dear people, realize that it is only by the grace of God that you and I are not at this moment consumed by fire of his wrath. You don't know how many times I've heard it say, Oh, why, it's, why is there so much trouble in the world? If God was a God of love, why would... Listen! If he weren't a God of love, one sin by one person at one time would be the end of everything. We can't have it both ways. We want a God who is non-threatening. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. They're afraid of him. Want to know something? I have a godly fear in my heart. When I fall into sin, 
I sense God's holiness. He hates evil. And I don't want to pay the consequence. All these people we read about just now, they're afraid in the presence of God and so should be. How many Christians have you heard say, well, the world doesn't like a God like that. You'll alienate them. We want a God that's kind of nice, sort of nice. And so we concoct a washed out, watered down, inoffensive substitute for the gospel that feels soothing to our flesh. A God who doesn't speak about fire and wrath and, and uh, vengeance and, and holiness and hell and punishment. Yes, we know men love the darkness rather than light. So let's not give them a lot of light. Let's just bring a little candle because they won't like it. The light of God terrifies them. The holy has always and always will be threatening to the unholy. And even Christians, we want to subscribe to gospel light. Jesus told us that we're either on board or not. We're either with him or against him. We're all in or all out. Yet we're constantly playing patty cake with the gospel compromising all over the place, disobeying whenever we feel like it, right in the face of a holy God. I wish we could see him just for a nanosecond. If we saw him once like Isaiah did, we would change us forever. As the praise team comes, let us go back to Isaiah chapter 6 to see what happened next. You see, Isaiah is devastated and shattered but God in his mercy does not leave him that way. It says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from, with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Ouch! A hot, cold touch in your lips is painful. There's pain involved in true redemption. Saying a simple prayer is not enough. It takes a broken and a contrite heart in the face of the holiness of God. You have to realize how sinful you are and in desperate need of a Savior. You have to see yourself compared to a holy God. Giving up sin is painful because we're sin addicts. But once it's done, we get the verse. And verse 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Isn't it great? Send me. Let me tell you, once you pick up the mantle, and desire to go for God. Satan, your accuser, will pop up and fill you with doubt. Send you? Ha! You're undone. You're woeful. You're wretched. You've got a dirty mouth and you're hanging around with people with dirty mouths. What's the old adage? When fear and doubt knocked on your door, faith answered and there was nobody there. You've been cleansed. 
The only way a man is fit to serve is when he's cleansed by the grace of God. Then you can confidently say, I'll go. Verse 9, and he said, what? Go. Let's stop right there. He said, go. You are qualified. You are a purged man. Folks, the cross is the live coal that touches your lips. The cross is the thing that purges us. You see, you and I could never stand in the holiness, in the presence of God, uh, the holy God. We would be consumed. The cross touches us and it makes us pure. If the only thing you remember about my sermon this morning, remember this. He died because God is holy and had to pour out his fury on someone. It was either you or him. He took your place. And that is a cause for rejoicing.